Welcome back to Northway's D Group Podcast. I'm your host, Rodney Mills, and I'm so glad that you've stopped by to listen. We've got a lot of ground to cover this week, but here's a quick recap of our journey so far in this series as we're beginning to learn what it means to apprentice our lives to Christ. Our working definition of a disciple of Christ is a a person who is willing to give up their preconceived ideas of what life is all about, to abandon their previous way of living, immersing themselves into the way, the truth, and the life of the Master in order to be like Christ. This is his real invitation. Come follow me. Come join me in my kingdom. He challenges us to make it first, to make it our priority, to seek first the kingdom. I paraphrase the disciples' priority, Jesus' commandment to seek first the kingdom this way. Above anything else, pursue God's kingdom agenda and join with his activity in your everyday traffic patterns of life as you develop the attitude and character of Christ. In one sense, that's the purpose statement for your apprenticeship. You might also remember I said uh, to be his disciple You have to be willing for Christ as master to challenge every aspect of your thinking. What is right and just and fair? What are appropriate responses to life's challenges and toughest people? Your values, your moral virtues, every single worldview floating around in that incredible brain of yours. You have to be willing to give it all up. You can't hold on to any of it if you're going to apprentice yourself to Jesus. He's the teacher. He's the one with the right thinking. And we have to be willing to experience a total reformation, a reformation of our minds. And nowhere is this more challenging than in the area of what to do with those difficult people of our lives that just seem to come against us. You see, for these opponents in life, Jesus offers his most radical teaching of all. He doesn't teach us meditative coping skills or anger management or diversity training. No, he goes completely against our natural way of thinking and calls for a transformation like no other. And so as we're learning to love like Jesus, let's jump into our big idea today and learn to love even our enemies. reporter was interviewing an old man on his 100th birthday. The reporter asked, what are you most proud of in your long life? Well, the old guy thought about it a few seconds and came back with his answer. Well, I don't have an enemy in the world. (laughs) The reporter was just moved by the answer and said, what a beautiful thought. How inspirational. To which the old guy just laughed and said, yep, I've outlived every last one of them. (laughs) Well, can you think of someone in your life with whom you've been arguing or perhaps someone who's made you angry? Do you have someone or multiple people who are right now actively engaged in making your life difficult, whether they realize it or not? Well, chances are you had to answer yes to those questions. I mean, whether or not you've thought of it this way, in a sense, those people are your enemies. And what are your thoughts and actions toward them supposed to be? What does Jesus expect from his apprentices? Well, we turn to Luke's gospel for this lesson. It's in Luke chapter 6. I'm in verse 27. But I say to you, listen. 
Love your enemies. Do what is good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If anyone hits you on the cheek, offer the other also. And if anyone takes your coat, don't hold back your shirt either. Give to everyone who asks, and from someone who takes your things, don't ask for them back. Just as you want others to do for you, do the same for them. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? I mean, even sinners love those who love them. If you do what is good to those who are good to you, what credit is it to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do what is good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High. For he is gracious to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Wow, you talk about some radical teaching. I mean, for most of us, we'd, we'd probably rather our text for today on how to deal with our enemies be more like David's prayer of frustration in Psalm 109. I mean, listen to how he prayed to God about his enemy. This is Psalm 109, verse 8. Let his years be few. Let someone else take his position. May his children become fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander as beggars and be driven from their ruined homes. May creditors seize his entire estate and strangers take all he has earned. Let no one be kind to him. Let no one pity his fatherless children. May all his offspring die. May his family name be blotted out in the next generation. <laughs> Have you ever prayed a prayer like that? I mean, that, that seems pretty intense. But we've all been there, right? Some people just get to us. And our old way of thinking kicks in so easily in these situations. I mean, it seems justifiable to fight back, to defend, or to even to get even, or offer payback. And yet, this radical rabbi from Nazareth, Nazareth, to whom you've determined to bind your life to in order to master his trade, he offers up such opposite teaching that it almost seems preposterous. What did he say? Love your enemy? Well, let's do some apprenticing here. Let's take the first couple of verses of that text for today and, and use it as an outline. This is Luke 6, 27. But I say to you, listen, love your enemies, do what is good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. So let's start with that first phrase, love your enemies. Now, you might remember from our last session as we were studying the greatest commandments, one of which is to love your neighbor as yourself, the tricky religion scholar asks, so then who is my neighbor? And so perhaps for this lesson, we might ask the opposite question, who is my enemy? Uh, here are some dictionary defin definitions of the word enemy, one that is antagonistic to another, a person who is hostile or opposed to a policy, a cause, a person, or a group, or simply just an opponent. Now, that gets the ball rolling a bit on who we might consider to be our enemy. I mean, we've probably all had people in our lives from time to time that we thought were just really out to get us. They had it in for us. And those are easily identifiable. But I would suggest that your enemy might not always be just those with whom you are in an all-out war. Here's some other examples. Uh, here's a list. Those who attack us. 
Now, certainly on the spectrum of enemies, these people are the most vicious and easily identifiable as our enemies. They attack us. But then there are those who are simply wrong us. They hurt our feelings. They gossip about us. Some of it may be intentional, but at other times they may not even know they've wronged us. Thirdly, those with whom we argue. Mm. Well, in the moment, perhaps that person is our enemy. It's a battle of words, after all, of who is right or wrong. And it often does escalate as someone is trying to win the argument. Those who stand in opposition to our values and convictions, regardless of whether we've ever talked to them face to face. So, for example, here, if you're a Republican, you might feel as though the Democrats are your enemy and vice versa. For some people, for example... Colin Kaepernick might have triggered a movement that stirs up anger because they think that, that they violate a value and a conviction. You don't even know them, and yet what they stand for, or what they kneel for in his case, is so wrong to you, whether you want to admit it or not, they and anyone who dares to agree with them have become an enemy to you. Now, you know me, I'm, I'm not going to stir up controversy or, or pick sides on those kinds of issues. I'm just trying to broaden the scope of who your enemies might be so you can allow Jesus to reshape your thinking and your responses to them. Last on my list here is that your enemy might also be someone in your past. Maybe your experience with them was such that, that you've yet to let go of the feelings of anger and bitterness. And so we'll deal with that before the session is over as well. And yet, with this big list of who our enemies might be, Jesus gives clear instructions on what our responses toward them should be. He says to love them. Now, remember, the the love Jesus speaks of is in the original Greek language as the word agape. You might remember C.S. Lewis's definition that agape is selfless love, a love that is passionately committed to the well-being of others. And so when Jesus says we are to love our enemies, he's not just saying it's the absence of conflict, but it's rather a commitment to their well-being. It's rooted in the kingdom principle of the great reversal, the first being last and the last being first. It doesn't mean you agree with them. It doesn't mean you condone their behavior or validate their opposing views. It's simply setting aside your instinct to retaliate and to defend yourself for the sake of God's love toward that person. So love your enemy, and then next he says, do what is good to those who hate you. Man, this runs in such opposition to the old man, doesn't it? But this part of the command is clearly rooted in agape, being passionately committed to the well-being of others. Now, similar to last week when we talked about compassion as a dynamic of agape love, this week I want to present two more dynamics of agape love, and the first is the dynamic of forbearance. Now, forbearance is withholding retaliation or demand for payment. It could also be defined as patient self-control, uh, loving, excuse me, long-suffering is a King James way of saying it. So the beginning of doing good to your enemies is simply forbearance, patiently withholding retaliation for the sake of love. Paul would teach us about this later in in, uh, Romans chapter 12. This is verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes, and if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath. Because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. 
Now, notice that forbearance is not to say that the one who has brought harm into your life will be off the hook forever. You're just leaving the vengeance to someone much more capable. David had the opportunity to retaliate against Saul. He could have easily taken matters into his own hands and even taken Saul's life. But what did he, what did he say? 1 Samuel 24, 12, May the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. And as we go about observing the life of Christ, apprenticing our lives to his example of living, we see that Jesus himself demonstrated incredible long-suffering and forbearance. Matthew twenty-seven twelve, when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Forbearance, being patient, and long-suffering. And remember, at some point, all will be reconciled, either through the cross or through the judgment. But doing good, again, is not just withholding retaliation. It goes much further. Because if we continue with Paul in Romans 12, we see that to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Oh, that's worth saying again. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is how we get through to our enemies, not by shouting matches, not by winning arguments, not by retaliation and vengeance, but through goodness and kindness. This leads us to Jesus' third part of the command. Number three, bless those who curse you. Oh, I love this. You see, to truly bless someone is the projection of good into the life of another. Uh, We sometimes use the phrase, God bless you. And that's really what Christ-like blessing is all about. We're calling on God on behalf of the individual to support the good that we are willing into their life. And get this, blessing someone is certainly not just a verbal performance. It is a prayerful spirit of calling for God's best. It is not excusing wrong or immoral behavior. You're not asking God to ignore it. You're asking God to show them his love in spite of it. And again, he'll handle the cleansing and judging in his way and in his time. He's God, you know, so leave the judging to him. Jesus says it a bit later in the Sermon on the Plain. This is Luke six thirty-seven. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. It'll be poured out into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, this language of reciprocity is used by Jesus all the time. It's the sowing and reaping language. And when we exercise God's loving ways, God makes sure it comes back to us. Granted, it won't always come back from your enemies, but he promises it will come back to you, even if it's from God himself.
also forbearance, withholding retaliation, showing grace and mercy, kindness and goodness. But there's one other part of his command. We've got to move to the fourth part. He says to pray for those who mistreat you. So how do we pray for our enemies? I mean, we often think of prayer as asking for something good in our own lives, or at least in the lives of our loved ones. Jesus himself encourages us to pray with faith for positive outcomes. I mean, listen here, and in Mark 11, Jesus replied to them, have faith in God, truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, everything you pray and ask for, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Now, that's pretty awesome, huh? And Jesus says to use that same kind of faith-based, positive outcome prayer for your enemies as well. But it wouldn't be right to stop reading there because Jesus also says next, and whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven will also forgive your wrongdoing. This right here, this, this is how we pray for our enemies, forgiveness. And this is the second dynamic of agape love that we need to cover in this session, forgiveness. So we return again to the Lord's Prayer. He says this in Matthew 6, verses 12, 14 through 15, forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. In fact, when he concludes the prayer, he goes even further with that discussion on forgiveness. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now, these sort of conditional forgiveness statements are not uncommon in Jesus' teachings. And they're even a bit confusing since we've always been taught unconditional forgiveness from him, don't they? So here's my best shot at helping us to understand. You see, to seek forgiveness from God for your own sins while withholding forgiveness from others is hypocritical. He says you can't walk in true fellowship with him if you refuse to forgive others. Living with unforgiveness is living in disobedience to God. And he, de- he teaches the depth of this principle in response to one of Peter's most famous questions, Matthew 18. Then Peter approached him and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? Jesus responds, I tell you, not as, not as many as seven, but 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. Now, here we go. Jesus says, life in the kingdom of heaven in the here and now looks like this. And so the story goes that a servant is brought in who owes the king a lot of money. And at first, the king says, go sell everything you have and you pay it now. The servant falls down, begs for mercy, and the king compassionately forgives the loan. But the servant immediately goes right out and tracks down the guy who owes him just a little bit of money. And he chokes him around the neck and he's demanding payment. And When the guy can't pay, he has him thrown in prison. Well, word gets back to the king, and he's just infuriated. Listen to what Jesus said. He said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? So Jesus is saying a primary rule in the kingdom is to forgive as you have been forgiven. Paul goes on to reiterate this principle to the Ephesians. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another 
But how far should we go? Paul says, as God in Christ forgave you. That's our model, friends. Forgive others as much as God has forgiven you through Christ. So here's a question you can ask yourself. How can I reflect the heart God has for me toward others? It's the line from the Lord's Prayer. Forgive my wrongdoing as I am forgiving those who have wronged me. But can we really forgive someone if they haven't asked for it? Boy, that's a great question, and here's how I've come to think about it. There's a difference between forgiveness, which is letting go of bitterness and resentment and the need for repayment, and reconciliation, which is really only possible if repentance is present. Uh, The writer of Hebrews says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. You see, unforgiveness and bitterness go hand in hand. And the writer says that if it takes root in your heart, it affects not just you but others. It says many become defiled. Your bitterness spreads throughout your home, your workplace, your classroom. Another translation calls it the poison of bitterness. It poisons your heart and soul. And for some of us, there's unforgiveness for some truly terrible injustices in our past. But by and large, for most of us, it's just a series of smaller enemies over our lifetime, little wrongs against us that have been the seeds of bitterness that have taken root. Now, 1 Corinthians 13 is is called the love chapter for a reason, and I'd like to challenge you to take a day this week to reflect on it carefully, but take a look at verse 4 through 7 here and see how useful these descriptors might be at helping you to love your enemy. I'm reading from the New Living Translation here. Love is patient and kind. That's forbearance. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable, and it keeps no wrong record of being wrong. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up. It never loses faith. It always, it's always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. It keeps no record of being wronged. That's the way most modern translations interpret the end of verse 5. Keeping record is like planting seeds of bitterness in your heart. But forgiveness is about digging up those weeds that choke out God's love, keeping it from being able to flow through your life. You see, if you went seeking for repentance from everyone who's hurt you or sinned against you in your life, it might seem hopeless. But again, we're not necessarily talking about reconciliation. We're talking about forgiveness. In the original Greek, the word actually has the connotation of letting it go. It's not approval of wrongdoing. It's not condoning it. It's it's the commitment to not hold on to it, to not let the effects of it take root in our heart. And here's the lesson you can't miss. Forgiveness is trusting God for the outcome. Well, we've already, already mentioned leaving the judgment and penalty and reconciliation for the offender in God's hands. But what about our own lives? We're trusting him for the best and brightest outcomes as well in us. Uh, Remember, we, we talked about this a few weeks ago, that as his apprentice, Jesus invites us to take on his yoke, to bind ourselves to him. He's carrying the load with us. He's there at every turn as we learn to do life in the kingdom with him. And what we must learn in this yoke, beyond acting with him, is to abandon outcomes to God, accepting that we do not have in ourselves the wherewithal to make this come out right, whatever this might be. 
You see, to abandon outcomes is to give up self-sufficiency and to abide in the circle of sufficiency we find in Christ's love. And forgiveness towards your enemies is one of the ultimate practices in God-dependence. Uh, you, you remember Joseph's story, right? His jealous brothers sell him off to sell off sell him off into slavery. His life goes through radical ups and downs because of it. But he ends up a mighty ruler in Egypt. The family's been reunited. Their father, Isaac, dies. And now the brothers are afraid Joseph is going to get back at them. They cook up a story that Isaac told them to tell Joseph to forgive them for the suffering they caused him. And so I pick it up here in verse 17, Genesis 50. Joseph wept when their message came to him. His brothers also came to him, bowed down before him, and said, We are your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Boy, that's a good one, isn't it? We sure act like we're in the place of God sometimes, don't we? Joseph said, You planned evil against me, but God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your children. And he comforted them, and he spoke kindly to them. Ah, oh, friend, can I just tell you this, that God is in control of your outcomes? He can take the worst assault on your life, the broken pieces of a lifetime of woundedness, and turn it into something extraordinary. Your fate, your outcome in life is not in the hands of those who would come against you. Your destiny is found in the life God wants for you. Joseph's response was to love his enemies, to comfort them, to speak kindly to them. Listen, we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Friend, if you're still struggling with enemies from your past, let it go. Don't hold on to it any longer. Join with Paul. Quit looking in the rearview mirror. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. You see, in our own strength, this kind of forbearance and forgiveness, it's not possible. What we've got to remember is that this kind of loving, rooted in selfless, sacrificial, agape love, the compassion for the hurting and disoriented we talked about last week, and forbearance and forgiveness towards our enemies, while it's a choice to live that way, it's only enabled through abiding in the love and grace of Christ. It's going to take that kind of transformational power of God in our hearts. So let me just say it again. The power to forbear and forgive others comes from abiding in the forgiving and affirming love of Christ. I'm convinced that this is what John was talking about, that God's love is made complete in us only when it flows through us into others' lives. And it also means we're okay if love for our enemies is not reciprocated because our sufficiency, all the love we need, is found as we abide in Christ's love for us. And thus, as he has promised, joy and peace are made complete as well. Love, joy, and peace should be our default disposition if we're abiding in Christ. And isn't that the life you long for anyway? Can I just tell you that if we truly apprentice our whole lives to Christ, this is what we can fully expect. Friend, this is the life you were meant to live. Accepting his invitation into the community of love represented in the Trinity. Trusting in him alone as your sole sufficiency. Selflessly loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. Compassionately giving to the hurting and disoriented. Even extending loving forbearance and forgiveness to your enemies. 
past and present. This is what it looks like to love like Jesus. The goal and ambition of our life with him, that the aim of our life is to be like Christ. Oh, I'm praying for you this week, friend. I encourage you to pull out that transcript of this lesson where at the end I've listed some questions and points of prayer that might help you with this lesson. You might also want to study that diagram of circles related to how Trinitarian agape love flows to us and through us. And maybe even one day this week, be sure to pull out 1 Corinthians 13, especially verses 4 through 7. Process your own interactions with the people in your life through Paul's description and his standards of Christ-like love. Well, I'm proud of you. Keep going, friend. Your mind is being transformed. So now go out and practice what you've learned. Let's go love like Jesus.